Welcome to Secure Talk, a podcast for security news, innovation, and excellence. Secure Talk is hosted by Justin Beals, founder and CEO of StrikeGraph. Justin has a 20-year career in technology, innovation, and startups. Welcome, everybody. This is Justin Beals with Secure Talk, a podcast about security news, information, and excellence. Um, Really excited for everyone to join us today. Today, we have a great guest. Stephen Farrell is joining us. Uh, Stephen is a deep expert in life sciences, security, and compliance practices. And so today, we're going to be digging into this area with Stephen. Stephen, welcome to Secure Talk. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Justin. Excellent. So why don't we just start off with what you're currently doing, the role that you play at organizations that you're engaged with. I think it's more than one that I've seen doing a little research. Yeah. So primarily, I am the head of IT governance and software assurance for a company called Ideagen. So Ideagen is a reg tech. What we mean by that is that we have a suite of software that serves regulated industries. So life sciences, certainly food and drink, aviation, transportation, really anywhere where there's a human element involved, where there's a potential safety concern, that is where uh, we live. My role is primarily on the services side. So within our IT governance vertical, we help companies who want to uh, achieve certifications, right? So we look at ISO 27001, we look at SOC 2, High Trust, and a whole bunch of other things, regional things in the UK, HIPAA in the US, those types of things. And we try to help them build out their controls and their security postures so that they can not only achieve certification or accreditation, but actually maintain it in the long term. Yeah, that's excellent. So that's an interesting cross-connect. IT governance and life sciences. Did you find computer science first or life sciences? Which came first? I was always interested in the sort of computer science IT side of things. And I graduated with a sort of mixed degree. It was sort of computer science and business. Management science and information systems was was what it was called. I'm old enough that it's since been retired. I'm sure there's much more exciting, fancy degrees now. But I really had no intention of, of getting into the life sciences. But I was, despite youthful appearance and voice, around for the dot-com crash in 2000. And um, when that happened, a lot of the, the tech jobs just vanished. At the time, I was working for a company called Lucent Technologies, who had spun out of AT&T, and specifically in the optoelectronics space. And it went from really boom to bust almost overnight. Yeah. I was clinging on for my dear life, and I think I sort of survived all the various layoffs because I was probably fairly inexpensive in the grand scheme of things. And came across a friend who had a friend who had sold a very large life science compliance IT project to one of the big pharma companies. And they were rapidly recruiting and I got very lucky. I, I'd had no yeah. no experience in the field, but the sort of desperation, I took the job and then I really put my head down and figured out what the job was. And that was over 20 years ago. So that's how I ended up in it really more by chance than choice. I noticed that you did a lot of quality assurance work, which I find an intriguing connection into this governance and compliance. It, oftentimes in the product work that I've done, QA is the, a little bit the redheaded stepchild of the mm-hmm. software development lifecycle. 
but in really critical industries, telecommunications, pharma, quality assurance is a critical activity. It, it is it is almost as important as the innovation work itself. It is, but, but you, I think you hit the nail on the head. The sort of redheaded stepchild moniker uh, survives even even in quality where it's legally required. So, and that's a kind of a big part of you know where I live today and some of the work I've done in industry is to try and find the balance between where quality is useful and where it becomes obtrusive. And it's a very delicate balance. I sort of use that. If you think of achieving compliance as sort of entering a, a circular forest, right? Once you're across the forest boundaries, regardless of what direction you came in from, you're compliant, right? But you can right. continue to wander through the forest, right? And you can wander 10 mm. miles in and be in the middle of the forest. From a compliance perspective, you're as compliant as you were when you got your two feet over the threshold. You've now burned through an awful lot of trees that you would question sometimes the purpose and, and you know, the value of that. So there is a real balance. It's, you know, making sure, especially in the life sciences, that you're maintaining patient safety and product quality and data integrity. But beyond that, that you're doing it in such a way that you can actually function as a business and, and you know, that your IT team is going to produce secure, worthwhile applications and services and not be tangled up in a bureaucracy that causes them to either not provide good services or take shortcuts because they simply can't work within the controls that have been provided. Yeah. You've also started some companies. What inspired you to move into entrepreneurship or spurred you that, that direction? Yeah, I think, and it's no slight against any of the, the operating companies that I've worked in, but especially the, the bigger pharma med device companies, you know, the, to, to enact change sometimes is sort of akin to, you know, trying to move a super tanker with a, a feather duster. It's very difficult. And to be fair to those companies, you know, their core product is not IT governance and software assurance. Their core product is a drug or a medical device. And, and that's where the innovation lives. Everything else tends to be in support of. And then for me, intellectually, I just got to a point where I was like, you know what, I think I can maybe be more useful as a consultant to some of these companies than I can be, you know, simply performing a, a function internally. And that's what sort of drove me to uh, myself and another colleague to, to start Compliance Path, which, you know, was our consultant company that was ultimately acquired by, by Ideogen. Yeah, congrats on the exit. I've found that too, that my entrepreneurship work has been a little bit of hubris often, <laughs> you know, like I think there's some issues. I want to fix it. I want to solve those problems that, or the, at least the clarity around the problem gives me some confidence that there's a business to build around it. Yeah. So a um, very successful career, Stephen, lots of amazing experiences. You've got a deep expertise in computer science. You have a deep expertise in its applicability in the life sciences space, which is a complexity all on its own. Not only that, you've um, built some uh, company and seen an exit with it. We have young and career listeners that are always interested in the security space and the opportunities that go for them. You know, if you were to give advice to someone that was just starting out in this career path area, what types of things would you recommend? I think I'm going to borrow a, a concept from Crossing the Chasm by, by Jeffrey Moore that's sort of targeted at market and software, but I think you can apply some of the principles to your career. And one of the, the things he talks about is 
finding a niche and really focusing your efforts on a niche. And I think the career advice I would give to anyone is if, if you want to be entrepreneurial, if you want to sort of move the ball forward from a career perspective, then find a niche and be very, very good at it. Um, you know, learn everything that you need to know to do the job and then start to ask why, like, why am I doing this? Right. And I think that's once you reach that point of enlightenment, then you can start to improve, right? You can figure out how you can do it better. And that to me is career progression. Yeah. I'll never forget. I think it was my first or second week out of university. I had a, a boss who, you know, was, was fairly weathered in the industry and, you know, I'm sure he'd given this speech a hundred times, but I never forgot it. And one of the things he said to me was, my hope for you is that you work yourself out of a job. Mm -hmm. At the time I was stunned. I'm like, why would I do that? You know, I just, I just got this job. Like, why would I work myself out of it? Yeah. And years later, I finally understood what he meant, right? It, you, if you get to the point where you're so good at what you do and you have such a deep understanding of what you're doing and why you're doing it, inevitably you'll progress, you know? Yeah. Again, not everybody necessarily wants to right some folks are happy to you know to, to to contribute in different ways but i think if you're driven to advance your career in a positive way that's in my mind that's one of the ways to do it yeah i think i've had a similar experience which is this concept of the cross connect when i learned how to program that was a valuable skill right people when i learned how to program technology for education that was exponentially more unique, right? Because you have these two things that you're becoming an expert in, the applicability of software development and what product can build and, and what that can deliver, as well as uh, what educators need or what learners need. And my career really progressed quite quickly in responsibility and impact as I brought the two things together. And I give this advice a lot, Any, everything from like sales to computer science, it's like, hey, be an expert in sales for, you know, networking. And it will really change the opportunities that exist in front of you and the relative value of what you might get paid. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head. I, I think it's having a, a technical skill set, but being able to distill and explain it to other people is really invaluable. So as that, that cross-connect concept really resonates. Well, I want to talk a little bit now about security in the life sciences space. A lot of our listeners are not participating in life sciences. As you said, IT governance is not the product their life science is trying to deliver. And so I think certainly our audience would be really interested in just learning some basic things about the space. So could you help describe life sciences? It's a great moniker. I'm always excited with anything that gets sciences attached to it. But who should we think about as included under the umbrella of life sciences activities? So it's quite a broad umbrella. So pharmaceutical companies, you know, would be the first to come to mind. Over the last 20, 25 years, there's been a lot of dilution of what the pharma companies do and, and it sort of created cottage industries around them. One of those being the clinical research organizations. A lot of that work used to be done internally and now there's a whole industry around clinical research organizations who do all the clinical trials and report back to the pharma companies as sponsors. Additionally, contract manufacturing organizations. So these are companies that don't generally have their own products, but they are going to manufacture a product for a pharma company or a med device company. And you have the med device companies themselves. Traditionally, the med devices were things that were fairly tactile, a CPAP, a heart stent. Now, med devices are becoming pretty ubiquitous. 
software as a medical device particularly has just exploded. Wow. Yeah. So, you know, that's, that's a whole new world in and of itself. And there's other, we're working with a number of logistics companies right now who have to show that they are compliant with certain aspects of good manufacturing practices for transporting and warehousing drugs, right? So these are trucking companies, right, who you wouldn't immediately associate with life sciences who have a fairly high regulatory bar they have to meet. So it's quite a broad spectrum and biotechs obviously as well a lot of them came to the forefront during COVID-19 so and then you get some hospitals some of the larger health groups will have some you know limited capacity to do research and manufacturing we've done a lot of work with Seattle Children's Hospital as an example you know they're very aggressive with a lot of the research that they're doing for different children's therapies and things like that so quite a broad brush as far as an industry goes. We see this thing with especially highly regulated industries where it does infect other areas. You know, your story about like the trucking company. And I imagine when, you know, thinking specifically about COVID vaccine distribution, there were temperature requirements around that vaccine distribution and being able to monitor that for quality and compliance to the guidelines. That's a very complicated thing for a trucking company that's usually just probably used to attaching a refrigerator on it and getting it to, you know, the storefront. It is. And, and interestingly, one of the things we bumped up against was a, a trucking company that was transporting a product that had to be, I think, minus 30 degrees centigrade. They were finding batches of it were being spoiled. And what they discovered was that the refrigeration unit, just the placement on the trailer was actually radiating heat up and, and destroying the product. So that's why they have to go through everything that you just said. And, and, you know, all of the sensors have to be qualified. They have to be secure. They have to, you know, be reliable and calibrated. So it's a real Pandora's box that you just wouldn't think of unless you were sort of in the space. Yeah. The other thing you mentioned is software as a medical device. That's very new too, right? Like mm -hmm. obviously a, a, a chip for a heart monitor or something has code on it. But today we're doing things with rings and app mobile apps that are making medical recommendations. It's got to be bleeding into life sciences in a way. Someone thinks they're writing code, but they wind up with a, almost as if they're providing a drug or a health regimen. Yeah, and I think we're on a bit of a collision course because one of the things that has been sort of historically true about the, the regulators themselves, and to be clear, I'm a big fan of, of the FDA, one of the challenges I think they're going to have is that they've primarily been a science-based organization and the vast majority of the people that they bring on board to either be field auditors or, you know, to review you know, new product applications, they have science backgrounds, which not surprising, mm -hmm. right? But with the rise of SAMD, I think there's probably a little bit of a deficit as far as technologists, you know? And yeah. having that ability to understand not just the science, but the technology, the technology and how it's the delivery of the technology, right? Yeah. Um, especially when things are up in the cloud, that's a skill set that is going to have to be very rapidly wrapped up, I think, within the regulatory agencies. Malleable invention software, right? Like we're so used to deploying every two weeks a change. It doesn't necessarily sit into the cycle that you would do quality assurance on a drug. No, it's, and that's the thing. I mean, historically, the compliance frameworks around software assumed a one-time static install. 
there would have been provisions for change management if, you know, four years after you bought the first version, you decided to, you know, upgrade to the second version. Now with sort of perpetual updates and that type of thing, there's a whole new risk profile that exists. And some companies are better than others as far as understanding it and remediating it. Yeah. You know, let's talk a little bit about that regulatory landscape. Life sciences especially seems like a highly regulated landscape. You know, there are others that maybe there's some privacy impact or things like that, but there's a, there's a quality assurance regulation. One of the things that's interesting to me is that, and we see this in some is how fractured is it? It's one of the questions we like to ask, like, you know, is a drug delivered in the United States versus a drug delivered in Europe probably has a different set of quality assurance and compliance requirements expectation. That alone has got to be a challenging issue to overcome. It is, and historically, it's probably been more fractured. We are starting to see certain areas becoming a bit more, coming together, I I guess, is for for a fair word. So like examples of that, like in the International Conference on Harmonization, all of the sort of global regulatory bodies have bought into that. And that is the concept of if you do a clinical trial in Eastern Europe and India, in the US, whatever the results of that are, have validity globally. There's a single harmonized standard around the the conduct of a clinical trial. Similarly, just in the last week or so, the FDA has indicated that they're moving towards taking ISO 13485, which is the standard for medical devices, sort of in mm-hmm. the rest of the world, and making that, integrating that into 21 CFR Part 820, which is the US med device standard. So, so we're going to see harmonization there too. Pharma, you know, we'll see, but it's not completely divergent. I think, you know, where you and I live, Justin, in sort of the IT governance software assurance space, it's less of an issue because mm-hmm. the, the standard set, like GAMP as an example, is global. And so it, it by definition, is harmonized. So the way that we would approach IT security or the software assurance of a, of a system in the US or in Europe is almost identical. There are some yeah. regional legal differences, but they are almost noise based on the amount of work that you have to do otherwise. It's a sign of maturity in the regulation environment when they start to realize that they've overburdened you know, the, globally the world. It, it makes it hard for products they want to see in the marketplace get out the door that they start to, I love this word, you know, they start to bring together this harmonization of these activities. I certainly saw that in the education space where we had a big fracturing of different standards and then an attempt to bring them back together on some level. And you bring up actually something you worked on that I'm a big fan of. Um, I thought it was an amazing uh, book, how-to guide and set of expectations. So uh, GAM, and if you don't mind, I'll I'll spell out what the acronym is, which is a good automated manufacturing practice. I always find those interesting. And you were a part of the authorship or a group that developed Camp 5, a risk-based approach to compliant GXP computerized systems. Second edition was recently launched. You want to just talk a little bit about the, the group that produces GAMP? Who are they a little bit? Sure. So GAMP came out of the UK, I think like in the mid 80s. And what it was originally was industry trying to respond to the regulators. So, you know, if you look at like 21 CFR part 211, which is the US, it's basically here's, here's the regulations to manufacture and distribute a drug in the US. It speaks to computer systems and, and some expectations around them. 
but there's no how to, right? It's simply here is a law, right? But there's no, oh, that's great. How do I actually comply with said law? And so the original sort of, you know, gap was an attempt by industry to say, well, what if we do this, right? And it's evolved over time. So GAMP 5 Second Edition is this, ultimately the sixth edition of GAMP. And so as technology has changed, it's been perpetually updated. And the intention of GAMP as a community of practice is really to provide industry with the least burdensome approach to IT and software compliance mm. within the life sciences. Now, least burdensome meaning to actually apply truly risk-based concepts, not to assess what's the risk if we do nothing, but rather to understand all the elements of a system, give them proper risk assessment, and then a remediation that is commensurate with the level of risk, right? So it goes back to my analogy about the, the compliance forest, right? But once, you, yeah. once that risk remediation is complete, then you maybe stop, right? And so, so GAMP is very unique in that it is truly, in my mind, you know, a very pragmatic guide as far as encouraging. There's a whole chapter in, in the second edition about critical thinking, right? So it's very much designed to help bridge that practitioner QA gap so that QA feels like what IT and the software developers are doing is compliant. And IT and the software developers can live in a world where they can be compliant, but not constrained to the point where they can't innovate. And that's the intention of it. A long time ago, when I was much younger, one of my first IT jobs was at British Telecom. And I worked in the security group for a couple of years. And my job was actually monitoring the kind of the backdoor access systems if we lost a point of presence. So we needed to get into Frankfurt. I had a couple of telephone lines with a modem back there that we could log into. And I learned this really intriguing philosophy while I was working at BT in, in the security group. We'd be like, you know, on our annual review, they'd be like, oh, did we spend enough money on security? And the response would be, well, if we didn't get hacked, then we spent the right amount. But if we did get hacked, then we didn't spend enough, so we need a bigger budget, right? Like we need to respond to this. And it, it was such a frustrating way, I think, to think about the scope of security and as a product person, my work in product, like you have to have a clear line on the scope of what you're building. Otherwise, it's you'll never get the product out the door. And when I moved into this space, one of the things I kept looking for was like, how, how does someone get the scope right for their security practice? And I just love this maturity around risk-based. We, I firmly believe in it, right? Like if I were designing a security practice, I don't want to do it just based on a standard alone, I want to do it based upon the risks that my particular business is going through. Yeah, and that's the, and that's the genesis of it. It's not just, you know, let's take the risk assessment from somewhere else and, you know, put our names on it. It's really understand your business, understand the context of your workflows, assess them and act. Yeah, and there are aspects to GAMP that I've looked at. You know, you mentioned critical thinking. There's also some business process aspects to it. There's cloud configuration recommendations in it as well. It's fairly mm. comprehensive too. It, it seems like quite the playbook as I was looking through it. It must have been nice to get it all under one roof in a way. Yeah, and that's really the intention. It's intended really to be sort of systemic. And, you know, th the great thing about the, the GAMP community of practice is it really does bring SMEs from really all over the world to together. And I think it's quite unique in that respect. So, you know, some of the people that 
were involved in it, like a gentleman named Sean Wynn. He was one of the, the people that helped architect um, 21 CFR Part 11 mm-hmm. with the FDA, you know. So these are people that have a really deep knowledge and understanding of kind of regulators' expectation. But the thing that brings them all together, I think, is this drive towards pragmatism. It really is, let's do this better. And that's what keeps, you know, Gap moving. And, and you know, it's really a, a pleasure to, to work with those folks and be involved in it. So one of the things I'm always curious about, like when we publish these standards, you know, it's great to say, hey, this is the expected amount of work or the scope of what we want to do. But especially hearkening back to our conversation about quality assurance, testing is everything, right? Like we want to do this, but then we want to test it and help enunciate for for myself and our, our listeners a little bit. What's the assessment regime look like for life sciences? You know, how do you get tested and communicate the the outcomes of that testing? There's two aspects to it. So if you take kind of an application in isolation before we think about delivery, you know, if you imagine the application had a hundred requirements, right? The system, the system mm-hmm. shell, right? You, the way that I recommend doing it and certainly the way that the GAMP is recommending it and even the FDA in, in their current draft computer software assurance guidance is to look at each of those requirements and assess them from the standpoint of patient safety, product quality and uh, data integrity. Understand if they have an indirect or direct impact on any of those three areas, and then assign them a risk score. And there's, there's lots of way to do it. I, I like kind of a five, four, three, two, one approach. Five being, this is completely bespoke. I have to go and find a software developer to make this because I have such a unique application. There are lots of folks that think that, but in reality, the life sciences are so well peppered at this, or papered at this point. There's not a ton of things that there aren't already an application for. So you don't see too many fives. You know, fours are things that are highly customized to your workflow. Threes out of the box. And then, you know, twos and ones are things that are less risky as you progress. If you imagine then having that and then applying that to your testing regime and saying, okay, well, if it's a five, I'm going to do A, B, C, D, E, F, G. If it's a four, I'm going to do A, B, C, D, and so on and so forth. Then what you're able to do is to scale the amount of testing that you do directly correlated to the actual risk of the requirement. And that might sound arbitrary. You might be like, why, of course, why wouldn't everybody always do that? But the reality is, you know, for many years, and still in some companies today, you know, the requirement that says the system shall show a picture of my cat, you know, when I log in is treated with just as much rigor as the one that wants to make sure that my digital signature is appended to a batch record. So yeah. When you actually look at really any of these supportive applications that, that are used in life sciences, you know, take a genuine accounting of those hundred requirements, you'll probably find that fifteen to twenty of them actually have a high potential product and patient risk. And the rest yeah. of it is sort of just peripheral stuff. And if you're able to do that successfully, then your testing quality greatly improves because you're focused on the right things and you're obviously, and then you're able to get hundred percent test coverage because yeah. you're not worrying as much about the lower risk things. And then on the delivery side, you know, with the prevalence now of, you know, kind of cloud first being the general policy of most companies at this point, if you want to be a legitimate player in the life sciences and sell your product into the life sciences, you're going to have to have ISO 27001. You're going to have to have SOC 2. You're going to have to be third-party certified. People were getting away for a while saying, oh, we're aligned with 27,001. Like, come on. <laughs> you know, so, yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm aligned with healthy eating, but really, does that happen? <laughs> so, 
it's not even a conversation anymore. And, and certainly any SaaS company that we interact with, it's non-negotiable. Like if you, if you want to be taken seriously, if you ever want to sell this thing, you better go get either one or two or all of those things and then live and breathe them so you can maintain yourself. So for the research organization, it sounds like a lot of the concern is in the liability. Like you want to internally test so that something doesn't happen and a liability is realized like you could be sued or you could come under a fine from the FDA or your project could be shut down entirely. You could not be able to bring the product to market. It certainly, I mean, and, and beyond, right? Like there was a publicly documented case, but there was a, a bit of software, I'll, I'll spare the name. That's right. <laughs> used for pharmacovigilance, which is part of the the exercise that the FDA goes through to assess whether, well, it, sorry, the software could be used for pharmacovigilance. And what, what the FDA was using it for was to determine whether generic drugs were equivalent to the brand name drug gotcha. as part of their wider process. And there was a bunch of very smart research scientists at a university who started messing around with it and figured out it was spinning out the wrong results. Mm. And so there was almost certainly generic drugs on the market that didn't have the efficacy that they thought they did. And there was probably some that had the efficacy that was necessary that got denied because it appeared that they didn't. Wow. So that's one example, but there's so many others of, you know, things going wrong and people getting hurt, right? And that's the ultimate, patient safety is the ultimate goal. And then consistent product quality, right? Every time you take a Tylenol, you expect it to do the same thing as the last time you took it. Right. Yeah. You know, and there's an art to that. And, you know, computers and software are critical to making sure that you always get the same dose and it looks the same and it lasts for just the same amount of time. So it's certainly the way I want to use computers and technology in my work. I think accuracy is something that it empowers us with at scale in a way, you know, when we put data into a model to get a prediction, we want a similar outcome. We want to be able to track that. We want to, you know, accuracy to me is a lot of times defined as the same data in equals the same data result on the other side. And I've harped on this a fair bit in my own work that like we're, we're not holding ourselves to a high enough accuracy expectations, especially when we build like AI tools, we're kind of happy with the sloppy. And I, I'm not, you know, I, I want it to be much more scientific than uh, qualitative in, in the way we expect it to behave, especially in, in the field where you help out people get hurt, to your point, in bad ways. Yeah. Well, I wanted to shift gears just a little bit. And one of the things that we like to do on Secure Talk is talk about excellence in security. And some of that is looking at our mistakes. And we've had a breach in the last six months that I find really interesting. I think you might have some uh, perspective on it. And so today we were thinking about talking about the data breach that happened with 23andMe. 23andMe.com uh, stores uh, genetic data, DNA data about consumers. So that's kind of an, in, they're, you know, they're an interesting beast, I think, in the life sciences space. I certainly used it a long, long time ago. I was just really interested in ancestry information through DNA and uh, found it really intriguing. So, you know, just to highlight that I'm a, a user of the system, although I'm not yet aware if I've been affected by the um, breach itself. I haven't done that research, but I did uh, go and do some uh, research on the breach. And I'd like to provide us a little bit of background on the breach itself. So just looking back on October 3rd, information came to light that someone was attempting to sell data on 23andMe via the dark web for between $1 and $10 per record. So that was the offer 
on a dark website to buy this data uh, that had been stolen from 23andMe. Uh, the data included the display name of the record, the gender uh, identification of the record, the birth year of the record, um, details about genetic ancestry results. It would say things like broadly European or broadly Arabian. It also included some more specific geographic ancestry data. The hack was perpetrated by credential stuffing. And my understanding of credential stuffing is this is where one system gets hacked and someone has used the same password or username for a secondary system. And they're able to use those credentials to log into a secondary system because it hasn't been updated and gain access to that data. And it looks like 14,000 user accounts were breached using this technique. It was quite a number. And I think one of the things that's really interesting about 23andMe is that it allowed 6.9 million records to be stolen. So well beyond just the 14,000 user accounts. And I think that's something I wanna chat about a little bit. And final thing that is a really interesting twist about this hack is that when the data was first produced, it focused on Azerbaijani Jews. So the data that was made for sale publicly, at least in the initial posts on the dark web, were kind of focusing on a particular genetic segment or ancestry segment of the data, which has just got an interesting political twist to the whole thing. So first, I think, Stephen, let's talk about the risk a little bit. So just because you're collecting consumer DNA data doesn't mean that DNA data isn't a risk in a way, right? <laughs> it's one of these things where having sort of a DNA profile in isolation, you know, what can you do with it? But I think if there's enough personal identified information tied to it, then you have an element of knowledge over someone that you wouldn't typically have, right? And like, yeah. why does that matter? So, you know, there's, there's different aspects to it. Being able to determine if, you know, based on someone's DNA, if they're predisposed to certain conditions, that might be something that people don't, you know, want to have shared, right? I mean, it, yeah, I think it's a very slippery slope because there's so much that you can glean from that type of thing that can be used in a negative way. Um, it really causes, you know, pause because I, I'd like yourself, Justin, I, I didn't sign up for that service, but I signed up for another one. So there's definitely curiosity to sort of understand our origins, but I think you give up an awful lot of privacy when you do so. Including all the people you're connected to. You know, we go from 14,000 hacked accounts to 6.9 million records. This is a, a data shift that is, is really intriguing. Well, it is. And the thing about that that is interesting to me, right? So one of the parts of ISO 27001 is that concept of secure development, right? Mm -hmm. Secure development practices. And uniformly, when we're sort of helping somebody work through that, I shouldn't say uniformly, not everybody, but a lot of people yeah. are like, what does that mean? Right? Yeah. But I think this is case in point, right? If, if you can have 14,000 user IDs and somehow get access to 6.9 million other users, there's obviously something in the structure of that database that is, hasn't considered that risk, right? And once someone has the keys to your front door, they have access to your whole house, right? So that kind of secure segregation of that data, obviously, we're not speculating, clearly wasn't there, otherwise there yeah. wouldn't have been 6.9 people, million people. But again, it speaks to, you know, the importance of having those certifications and actually living and breathing them. The other thing I always find intriguing, Stephen, when we deal with life sciences space, especially like the healthcare type of space, is that we have so much opportunity to monetarily prize the breach, right? 
we know that they were attempting to sell these records between one and ten dollars. Even at the median, you know, that's fifty million dollars worth of value on the dark web, like right off the bat. That is a massive amount of money for a hacker. You know, you mm-hmm. have to understand the, the the opportunity of crime presented by that particular data. I think if you're operating an organization like this, right? Yeah, I mean, data data is gold, isn't it? I mean, it really is. Every aspect of our lives impacted by it. I mean. I guarantee whatever you and I have talked about, my personal assistant, whose name I won't mention, will have been listening and I'll have an advertisement on my phone in about 20 minutes, right? So right. probably for 23 and me, I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> yeah. But I think that's it. I mean, data is such a huge commodity. And the rise of AI, it's just incredible what we can now do with understanding the, the demographics of a group of people. Or It's amazing. To wrap up a little bit around 23andMe, I'm going to talk about their response. So I did a little research on 23andMe's breach response. It was pretty standard breach response. They reviewed the breach, the data that was offered. They investigated the method of the breach and responded uh, to the breach by forcing a password reset on their users, which, of course, would hopefully stop the credential stuffing work that had enacted the breach initially. However, I did want to talk about one aspect of this. Now, 23andMe is under litigation for a class action lawsuit now around this particular breach. And of course, this is a legal response. So I want to highlight that. But the legal response stated this, 23andMe believes that unauthorized actors managed to access certain user accounts in instances where users recycled their own login credentials. That is, users used the same usernames and passwords on 23andMe.com as other websites that have been subject to prior security breaches. The lawyers then state, and users negligently recycled and failed to update their passwords following these past security incidences. The legal document then says, therefore the incident was not a result of 23andMe's alleged failure to obtain reasonable security measures under the California Privacy Rights Act. I have to say this is a struggle for me, right? Because I can think of a million ways in software we can ask people (laughs) to update their password. And I realize they're fighting a lawsuit here, but it just seems to me there were some security controls that could have been put in place here. Yeah, to your point, right? Just sending out an email every 90 days saying, hey, update your credentials, or even having a timer so when you go and try and log back in, it says time to update your password. I mean, even that's basic, right? Yeah. And then just like, as I said earlier too, the concept of secure development practices, like how, you know, conceiving if somebody was compromised, what could a hacker get from that experience? So, oh yeah. I mean, I I think, yeah, to your point, it's a legal response, but it'll be a tough one to argue, I suspect. I certainly hope that as computer scientists broadly, we take the opportunity to bake in security to our platforms and systems, right? Like, I don't think we should rely on users to be the firewall for security when we can put in place code that helps make that happen for us. I just think that's something we need to own as developers of these very powerful products. Yeah, I agree. Stephen, it has been such a treat for you to join us today. I have learned a ton. It's been really um, interesting to discuss your work around GAMP, your amazing effort to help organizations that provide good security and develop amazing products in the life sciences space, and also taking the opportunity to review what lessons we can learn from the incidents that 23andMe suffered. 
really thank you for your time today. I hope you to have you back on the podcast sometime. Any parting thoughts for us during this episode? No, just appreciate the opportunity to join you today, and thanks for the great conversation. Thanks, Stephen. Thank you.